Hebrews chapter 1. Now, uh, when I was born long ago in that other world of the 1980s, the world was a very, very different place. Nobody owned a mobile phone. Can you believe that? Nobody had email or even the internet. Indeed, that strange alien place we used to live in didn't even have Facebook. Imagine that. Yet in the course of more than, little more than a quarter of a century, the world has changed forever through what is a communications revolution. When I grew up, if I wanted to uh, speak to my friends, talk to my friends, I either had to go and find them in person or I could use the landline. Imagine having to do such a thing. Today, of course, I can use my mobile phone from nearly anywhere. I can talk with my friends. I can Facebook them. I can text them. I can email them. I could Skype them over the internet for free. Or as I've just found out, there's another free messenger thing, a free messenger app now for iPhones or for smartphones. If you wanted to buy a book in the 1980s, you had to go to a bookshop. Or you had to borrow it from the library van or the library. Today, through the internet, you can download mostly anything you like. We have more information now at our fingertips than we ever did. You can put it on your Kindle or your iPad. Back in my school days, uh, if I wanted to send something via the internet, and we did have internet when I was at school, it was very, you were very limited in what the amount of information you could send with, the, of course, the, the, the dial-up connection. It was even very difficult to send a floppy disk. Remember those? floppy disk. It was even difficult to send a floppy disk's worth of information over a dial-up connection. But today with super-fast broadband, cable connections, you can send a gigabyte of information with not that much trouble. The scale of the change we have lived through and continue to live through is staggering. Today, you and I have the ability to communicate with more people with more information in a few minutes on a smartphone or let alone a laptop than you could have imagined at, say, the beginning of the 90s. But however wonderful and spectacular the communications revolution has been, it falls into pale significance in light of the opening statement in the book of Hebrews. For there, the author to the book of Hebrews states for us the most basic fact of Christianity and probably the most important The fact that God speaks. The eternal being who created in the beginning and who imagined and implemented the creation we live in and experience communicates, speaks, reveals himself to his creation and to us, his creatures. For the author of the Hebrews knows that he and wants his readers to understand that That God is not some distant, silent deity who hides away from us. But God has chosen to reveal himself. He has spoken. He has communicated to make himself known. God can be known in some measure. Because he has chosen to speak and reveal himself. And this is one of, if not the most important, part of our understanding of the Christian faith. Because if God instead chose to be silent and not to speak, then we'd only be left with creation, with providence to try and understand who God is. 
We would be guessing as to his real nature, what he was really like in his own character. We'd be left in the dark about this unknown deity. One, what did he want from what does he want from us? How do we live in response to his being? But God is there, and he is not silent. He has spoken. And in so doing, God has chosen to reveal himself to us. And of course, this is the big thrust, the big argument in the opening verses of Hebrews chapter 1. Now, we don't know who the author of this book of the Hebrews was. Um, In fact, we know very little about uh, the background of the book. I think the author, whoever he was, and in my opinion, there's no point speculating, as others have done, uh, he was an associate of Timothy. He mentions him at the end. That is Timothy Paul's uh, apprentice in Ephesus uh, and various places. And this letter was probably written, from what's said in it, to primarily Jewish Christians. Not exclusively so, but primarily to Jewish Christians. And I think sometime, uh, probably around the 60s A.D., so quite early. And the author writes to a people who, who needed to be reminded. They needed to be reminded that, that in Christianity, in the faith that they had heard and believed, they had come to the end. The end of their searching for forgiveness of their sins. The end of their searching for the assurance of that forgiveness. Whoever these people were, and we can't be sure, um, whoever they were who, to, who received this, this letter, or as the author describes it in, in chapter 13, a word of exhortation, they were in great danger of falling away from the faith. The faith that they had begun in, and now they were going to head back. They were going to head back to Old Testament practices and understandings. Old Testament understandings of forgiveness. Old Testament understandings of worship. The reasons for these, if you, look, if you read the letter, seem to be twofold. There's the evil, unbelieving heart, the internal struggles with their own sinfulness. And then there were the external pressures of being a Christian in a hostile environment, the Roman Empire of the time, where Christianity may well at this point have been outlawed or not very well received. But whatever the precise reason The author to the Hebrews is a very clever pastor for his people. For whatever the reason that they're doing this, he wants these people to remember and to look. He wants them to look to the one place that they will find what they need. The place where God has revealed himself in the fullest and in a final way. That is in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, for whatever else we can say about Hebrews, we can say this, that there is one short exhortation or sermon, if we want to call it that, in a form of a letter to these people to get them to look again to what God has done in Christ and not fall away from him. So the author begins at the very beginning. He begins with the most foundational aspect of their faith, that God has spoken and revealed himself in a special way, not just through creation and providence, but in a special, or we might say, saving way. And in the first two verses, 
the author draws various contrasts about the ways in the way in which God has spoken. So he begins, God has spoken in the past. And then in verse 2, after that but, the but's there to draw the contrast, we find that God has spoken also in these last days. The author sees the history of God's dealing with his people spanning two time periods. The past and now these last days, which he is assuming he himself is within. The readers are within those last days. That is the past during the Old Testament era and these last days, the time after the Messiah has come and until he returns again. So God has spoken back then and he speaks now in these last days. And notice also, and this is important, that God has spoken in the past to our forefathers, our fathers. That is God's people in that old past era, in the Old Testament era. And the author of the Hebrews will name a lot of these characters, uh, specifically a lot of these characters in chapter 11, later on. But he has also spoken to us. In the past, he spoke to our forefathers, and now in these last days, he has spoken to us. God has revealed himself to our forefathers, and he has now revealed himself to us. How has he done this? In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets. That is through intermediaries. Men who spoke from God or for God to the people. Moses. Samuel, for example. Or the latter prophets, Micah, Amos, right up to the point of John the Baptist, who was the last of these prophets. As the author says, God spoke through these prophets at many times. Throughout this entire era, this Old Testament era, God raised up these people to speak for him. During the Exodus, it was Moses. During the divided kingdoms, you had Elijah and Elisha. Nehemiah after the exile, and so on. God spoke at many times. And he spoke in many different ways. God dictated to Moses the exact things that he was meant to tell the people. At other times, God spoke through great dreams and various apocalyptic visions. Think of Daniel. Still at other times, God spoke through the preaching of men like Amos and Jeremiah, even when the people didn't listen. Other times, God spoke through the compositions of men. When David wrote Psalm 23, it wasn't written by dictation from God. It was his own meditation on God's providential protection and guidance of him personally. Yet at the same time, God was using that. It was still from God. God spoke in the past to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But that is not how God speaks now. For in the, these last days, in the, this time period between the first and second comings of Christ, God speaks through his Son. Or literally, through a Son. Or we could put it like this, through one who is Son. Now this is not trying to suggest that God has more than one Son. But the way it's written in the Greek sentence, the author is trying to show us the exalted status of the final method that God has used. God has now spoken in the Son. 
In contrast to before, when God's revelation came in many ways and at different times through these intermediaries, now God has spoken in a final and a full sense, a full revelation. Not through intermediaries who spoke from God, but rather through his Son. You see, what the author wants his readers to see here is that in the past, God revealed him, God's revelation of himself, yes, it was still true, it was still correct. There is no sense in which what God had said in the Old Testament is somehow less true than what he says now. But it wasn't complete. It wasn't full. It wasn't as full a revelation as has now been given in the Son. What God said to and through the prophets was correct. It's still God's word. The author of the Hebrews will show us that in his use of the Old Testament, continually using it. He sees it as God's word. But it was not complete. But now in the Son, God has spoken in a final way. Giving the fullest revelation of himself that he could possibly give because he has spoken in his Son. The old uh, commentators used to talk about this being the difference between law and gospel. And that's correct. But I think maybe a better way to think about it in, light, in the light of what Hebrews says and its ideas is to think of it in terms of promise and fulfillment. The revelation that God gave through the prophets in the past was one of promise. The promise of salvation. The promise of forgiveness. But now in these last days, God has spoken to us through the Son. And in the Son, God has given us the fulfillment of all those promises. All that the prophets spoke about ultimately find their fulfillment in the Son. It's a bit like a dimmer switch you get in your house. When you turn the knob on and you hear the first click, the light, you get a very, very low level of light. And throughout the Old Testament era, God has been revealing himself. More and more light has been given to his people. But it's only when you get that last click, the full one, the switch is the fullest way around, that you, you get the whole light, you get to see the room all lit up. So in Christ, God's final word, we have the full picture, we have all the light. It is now switched on completely. So we today, in these last days in which we live, have the complete picture. The fullest revelation that we're going to get. There's no more revelation from God required because God has spoken to us in these last days, finally and fully, in the Son. The Son is superior to the prophets in the sense that he reveals in the fullest way what they could only see in part. But in what sense, then, has God spoken in the Son? How do you speak in a person? Well, that's now what the author goes on to describe. For in Jesus, the Son, we aren't just getting teaching. We aren't just getting words that we get like from the prophets in the past. It's much more than that in the Son. For in the Son, we see God as he really is. The Son reveals to us God and can completely do so 
in a way that the prophets in the past never could because he is the Son. Now what you have to understand here is that when the author uses here the title of Son, he is the Son or a Son, he is speaking of, yes, he is speaking of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. But that's not the specific thing he wants us to see here. Rather, Jesus is the Son in the sense, and this will take some, a little bit of explaining, he is the Son in the sense that he is the Messianic heir. What do I mean by that? Jesus is the Son, the promised one, who would come not only to reveal God, but also to rule and to reign over the whole universe that God has made, including a people of his very own whom he would redeem and purchase for God. Jesus is the Son in the sense that he is the heir. Notice what uh, the author says uh, in verse 2. When he, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the universe. This is a deliberate allusion to Psalm 2. Uh, and actually, it's, it would do you no harm to look this up. Psalm 2. Psalm 2, verse 8. And... You'll actually see this. In Psalm 2, verse 8, we have a dialogue between the Father and the Son. And it's this, God is appointed, the Son is God's appointed king, the one who will reign in Zion. And he tells him that he would make the nations his inheritance, the ends of the earth his possession. Now, ultimately, this psalm finds its complete fulfillment not in any of the kings of Israel, in David or in Solomon or, or the kings of Judah. But it finds its fulfillment in Jesus who is the son. You are my son. Today I have become your father. And what's more, it's not just that the nations that Jesus inherits. Uh, it's not just these nations that Jesus inherits. In terms of Hebrews, Hebrews is saying it's the, everything God has created. Jesus as the son and heir is the heir of all things. Now when was he appointed heir? Well, if we take the thrust of the argument in Hebrews, then it was when he was exalted to the place of honor at the right hand of God, verse 3. In a sense now, Jesus has always been the heir, has always ruled over it because he is the preexistent son with the Father and the Spirit. Yet in his role as the messianic heir here, his role, like Psalm 2 describes, then he was appointed after his death, resurrection, and when he was ascended, when he was exalted to the throne of heaven. So in that sense, Jesus is the appointed heir that Psalm 2 describes. And what's more, the very thing that he was appointed over was his by, by right anyway because he, it was through him that God created it all in the first place. The entire created world, both seen and unseen, visible and invisible, was created through Jesus. This is the, Jesus is the word that was in the beginning with God and was God. Through him all things were made. Without him uh, has nothing, nothing has been made that, was, that has been made. John chapter 1, if I can quote it properly. Or what we read in Colossians chapter 1. Or think of Genesis chapter 1 as God speaks through the Son. 
God created all these things through the Son. The Son is precisely heir because he is also creator. And so all things belong to him. So God speaks in the Son. The Son is heir of all things, seen and unseen. And the Son is the supreme revealer of God. Because, in verse 3, he is God. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Firstly, notice that the subject of the author has now changed from God in general to the Son. For the Son in and of himself is God. Not only is he the heir and creator, but the Son reflects the Father. Not in the way that you could say the moon reflects the light of the Son, but rather Jesus is himself the light which shines. In Jesus we have the presence of the glorious God. God is glorious in and of himself, and in the Son we see that glory. If God is to be compared to uh, the sun, that is the sun which our planet orbits around, then Jesus is the radiation from which, from, uh, that emits from it. The radiation and the sun are the same. Yet we see the sun, we experience it because of that radiation that it emits. Jesus is, the one, is one with the Father. He is God. And it's in him that we see the glory of the Father. As John put it, no one has ever seen God, but God the one and only, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And Jesus is the exact representation of his being. The idea behind this is that of an impression left on a blob of of wax or or a, a coin when it's stamped. The sun is the stamp which represents God. Now, that metaphor can't be stretched too far because Jesus, the Son, can't be separated in the way that the stamp and the impression can be from the Father. However, the author wants us to understand that in Jesus we have the exact, the full, the complete, the absolute representation of God because as you see Jesus, you see God in and of himself as he is. So together here we have the fact that Jesus is and of himself, the presence and glory of God revealed, and he represents in the fullest and most complete way the Father to us. Indeed, in a final and supreme way. In a way that the prophets of the, of the past and the dreams and the visions and the law that was given could never do. God has spoken in Jesus. He has given us himself as he is. And we find that it's not just that Jesus himself is God, but also his word is what is upholding the universe. He sustains all things by his powerful word. Not only did he, Jesus, create all things, but these same all things are upheld by his word. He is himself the word by which all things came into being, Yet at his word, all things are maintained and brought to their appointed end in accordance with the plans 
and purpose of God. Christ's word, then, is the powerful providential word that not only allows, that allows everything to be maintained in its existence, the reason you are breathing now is because he is upholding you. It maintains it in its existence, but it also governs all things and brings them to their, their purposed progression. He is upholding history and to their appointed end. In other words, Jesus not only represents God, not only reflects God to us, but he acts like God as well. Jesus is uniquely qualified more than any other person or any other means to provide us with a full and final revelation of God because he is the Son. He is the heir. He is God come to us. But thirdly, the author then describes Jesus in his priestly role. Now this, of course, will be a, a one of the major themes of the entire letter as it progresses. Jesus is the great high priest, the one who would not only reveal God, but provide a final and definitive sacrifice for sin. Here the author only really hints at what he's going to say later on in verse 3. After he had made purification for sins, he says, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. As the Son, we will see as this letter progresses, Jesus is uniquely qualified for this work of purification. In his role as the Son, who is both God and man, he will provide the perfect sacrifice that will make atonement for the sins of his people. Jesus not only reveals God in his character, but also reveals God in his works of redemption and purification. In his life, in his death, in his resurrection, and in his exaltation, Jesus reveals to us the Father. He reveals to us God. As Jesus the Son would hang on a cross, he would provide us with a forgiveness and a way to be in a relationship of grace rather than of wrath with God. Then notice that the author says next that he sat down. After his death, after the cross, after his work of atonement, he sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You see, in the original temple structure, in the past, in the Old Testament, in that era, in that temple or in that tabernacle, the priest never sat down. Their work of atonement was never finished. Every day, every year, they were required to work as mediators between God and the people, taking their sacrifices of lambs or bulls or goats or whatever it was, prescribed in the law, slaughtering it and making atonement as was necessary. There was no end. That continued until now. When Jesus, the final high priest, sat down, that is he when he had finished the work of atonement. His sacrifice was the end of all that had been before. 
It's in it we find the, f- the fulfillment of all that that old system of sacrifice stood for. It is not required any longer. Jesus didn't just sit down outside the temple grounds, though. After his death and his resurrection, he was exalted. And, of course, this is now going to become another major theme in the letter. Jesus is now exalted to the right hand of the majesty in heaven. That is where he is. That is the place of victory. That is the place of supreme honor and majesty. There is no higher place in which Jesus could have been given. It is the highest authority. In the book of Revelation, we find that the Lamb is on the throne himself. It is the highest possible place to share the throne with God himself. At the end of Matthew's gospel, just before his ascension to the highest place, Jesus told his disciples what? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. As we said earlier, Jesus is that messianic son, the one who is appointed as heir of all things. So here, as he finishes this work of purification in his death, he is exalted to the right, the highest place, the right hand of the majesty in heaven, and to a place where he is heir, ruler, and reigns and rules over all of it, all of it that was his by right. Jesus is not only priest, but he is also the king, the ruler of God's people, the heir not just of the nations, but of all things seen, unseen, visible, invisible. And he has inherited a name that is superior to that of the angels. For the Son himself is superior to the angels in his work of revealing God. Now it may strike you as very strange as to after saying all that, why does angels come into this all of a sudden? Well, I don't want to say too much about angels here because we'll look at that in more detail the next time. But angels in Jewish thought and Jewish theology were involved, of course, in the great works of God's redemption and and revelation of himself uh, in the Old Testament. They were classed as being very important and given special status. Angels were said to have uh, mediated the law to Moses, for example, uh, and various other things as well. So the author here is making it plain that although in the past angels were involved in the process of, of God's revelation, prophets and angels, Christ is superior to them all. For Christ has the name that is better, that is higher, that is more supreme. Christ has inherited the name of Son, Messianic Son. And so it is in him that God has given a better or superior revelation of himself. For he is, as we have seen, the heir, the priest, the king, and God revealed. So however much the first readers of this letter thought of angels, and whatever their importance they would have placed on them, Christ is better, more important, provides us with a fuller and better revelation of the Father, something that these angels could never have done. He gives us God himself. But my friends, what does all that, after all that, 
What does it all mean? Well, let me mention two things. Firstly, it means that you and me can't be deists. Believing in a grand old watchmaker up there in the sky somewhere who made the world, wound it up and let it go. For in Jesus, we find that God has clearly and fully disclosed himself to us. In Christ, as we find him in the scriptures, we have the fullest picture that we can have. Today and every day, until Christ returns, God is speaking to you and he is speaking to me. He is speaking in his Son, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in his exaltation to God's right hand. God is seen in the Son. He is speaking in the Son. We see the radiance of his love and mercy. We see God as he really is. That means, friends, that you and me, and indeed anyone, have the potential to know that God. You can't know him exhaustively, of course, because only God can know himself in that way. But you can know him insofar as we know Jesus, who knows the Father. God has spoken to us. Are we listening? That will be the big question we have to answer. In these last days, in this time in which we live, God's voice is heard in Jesus, in the gospel. That is the way God speaks, but are we listening? Secondly, the first readers of this letter were in danger. They were in danger of falling away from Christianity, as we've said, because of various pressures that were on them. They were in danger of wanting a religion that was devoid of Jesus. They wanted something that they could see, something that they could touch that was tangible, rites or rituals they could participate in, they could belong to. They could find some measure of assurance and comfort because they could see themselves doing it. They wanted to go back to physical religion. See, that type of religion is easy. It's acceptable, especially in in Roman Empire times. You can turn up on your appointed days. You can take part in religious services. And that was them done. They had done what they needed to do. They had settled their own consciences. They had done what God required. That's easy. They could go away and forget about it. Live their lives and enjoy all that the culture had to offer them, all that the society had to give them. And it didn't cost them anything. They wanted to go back to a physical religion that gave them assurance of having their sins forgiven because they had done something in order to get them forgiven. They had participated in something. They had watched something. They had had words pronounced that meant something somehow. And just as it was a temptation for them, so today it is still a temptation. Not necessarily in the same way, but it is still a very real temptation. Forget about Jesus and to rest in our ability to be part of the church, our ability to, to do work in the church, to do something To rest in the assurance that comes from attendance at church. To think that these things are somehow, or by these things we are somehow okay. To think that by participating in in certain things, in rituals or rites, or wearing the correct clothes, or, or giving the right amount of money, or by this we are somehow getting to God. That we are okay with God. That we are 
getting a forgiveness. We are getting a, a relationship with God. That we can be acceptable and in God's good books. And even in our own evangelical free church way, we can abandon Christ and look to these things. Thinking that somehow if I've read my Bible and prayed every day, I'm okay. By listening to sound preaching and liking sound preachers, I'm all right. I'm part of the group. God has accepted me. All these things might be good in and of themselves. But if we think that we will get to God by them, we are mistaken. For they are all folly if we think that by doing these things or by being involved in these things or by having this religious outlook that we are okay. For the author tells us that the only way to get to God is through Jesus. That's where you're going to find him. You won't find him anywhere else. You won't find that forgiveness that you long for anywhere else. You won't find that assurance anywhere else. It's silly to look for it in other things. But so often we do it. We like to do something, and then we know we've got that assurance. We like to see something, and then we know we've got that assurance. But you see, that was exactly their problem, because they could see all these rituals. They could see all this religion. They couldn't see Jesus. Where is he? He's exalted. Because the only way to see Jesus is by faith. Is by faith in him. And you see, that is the big message of the book of Hebrews. God has spoken. He has revealed himself. He has shown us what we need to see. And he's done it in Jesus. Where do you see Jesus? By faith. God has spoken. Chapter 1. Live by faith. Chapter 11. What God has spoken is sufficient. You can see Jesus in what he has done. You can see God in Jesus, in the Son. Now live by faith in what God has spoken. Don't go back to wanting to find your assurance in things that you can see and touch and do. You find your assurance and your forgiveness in what God has spoken in the Son. God has spoken in these last days by his Son. And it's only as we look to him in, in faith that we find God, that we find that assurance and forgiveness, the strength and the mercy to live in this life and the hope that it gives for the next. That's the message of Hebrews. God has spoken a better word than the prophets, a better word than the word through angels. He has spoken in the Son. Nothing more is required, only him. Therefore, as the message of Hebrews tells us, we need to pay more careful attention to what we have heard. We need to look to Jesus. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus. On the Son whom is the appointed heir. Lest we drift away. Lest we drift back to a pointless and stupid physical religion. A religion of works. Where you will not find what you need. But let us look in faith to the Son who speaks for God. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. 
For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, as well as Christian commentary on the latest current affairs in Scotland, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solace-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.